0: Yeah, I sometimes wish I I could sing. Uh, I, I really can't.
1: <laughs> At least you know your weaknesses. <laughs> you're not gonna go on like <laughs> Weaknesses. <guidelines. laughs> weakness. Singular. <laughs> the only one <laughs> that you're willing to admit to. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Um.
0: Okay. Um. Okay.
1: Okay. Okay. We roll. Um. Are this. we rolling? Have we rolled? We haven't rolled. Ah. Uh. Whoa! And my a-drums have left the again. Uh, Sorry. I think you're doing it deliberately. You just look so smug.
0: No. Um.
1: You look so pleased with yourself every time it comes in like way too loud. <laughs> I'm just
0: happy that I f- I press on the right thing here. Like if people would know how difficult it is, how technically challenging this is, to wait, press wait, the way too button. loud. No now <laughs> you know, like, i'm listening to this podcast for a while now and every Our single podcast. time every single time they begin they like the guy running the show is adjusting something like last minute like while they're going and i was like how can this be like this is like literally 200 episodes and still every time he is like oh wait i have to turn this and click like, here he just, like click and down oh, and we goes- don't listen yeah it, it just does like every time he needs to adjust it I have, and now it's me. It's just the same.
1: I think, like all the podcasts I listen to, basically establish the fact that there's no like smooth way to intro a podcast. Either you have like a set thing you say, like "Hello and welcome to another episode of Baby Geniuses or whatever, or yeah. whatever. But if it's not that, then there's no. Yeah. It's very hard to get a natural way. I think.
0: I think so too.
1: So like screwing up technologically is kind of the, the most natural way to enter a podcast. <laughs> <I was> just,
0: <laughs> like, just stumbling into me like,
1: what? what what's happening? <laughs> Hi. Why? Why? Anyway, hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes.
0: Yes, the podcast that has no technical difficulties ever.
1: Ever. My <laughs> computer just like went blank, so it's <laughs> hoping it turns back on again. Hey. Um, yeah, what have you been up to? I have been looking for jobs, which is very stressful. Um uh, yeah. Yeah, I am not a German citizen, not a citizen of any country of the EU, Um, so I have to find a job or GTFO, um, (laughs) and no, um, I'm looking for, for other jobs, um, around, but it's kind of this weird balance of knowing how many to apply to, to make your chances of getting the right jobs and how to line everything up because of course everything takes different amounts of time. So one job I applied to in July, like at the start of July, and they just like emailed me, um like yesterday or two days ago to say they were like like wanted to have an interview last
0: two weeks of august
1: yeah so like maybe they're on holiday or maybe they had already one round of interviews and they found nobody and i'm like their 84th choice and they're like okay i guess we could like Yeah. yeah i guess we have this stupid australian we could try to take her like see if she's useful but
0: did you run already into the problem of um having like your second cho- uh, favorite choice say yes and waiting for your first choice nobody for an has answer? said yes to the vegan
1: okay. so far so um yeah um the worst case scenario i guess is if if nobody says yes the second worst scenario is if everyone says yes <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah. um i have yeah. to make some big choices yeah um,
0: choices it's it's really hard choices
1: are so hard like it's yeah. just i don't want to i want to just like stay in my I love my flat I love Berlin I love like part of me just wants like go into a little cocoon and, and stay there forever but ah the beauty of science that one must move all the freaking yeah. time like yeah all the time
0: yeah. yeah yeah true true that
1: and then so I have um, next week I fly out for some job interviews I have some job interviews um, that I'm going to in person so I have to take a flight um, but of course this week in the preparation week I managed to get sick had to take some days off work and then my um, I wrote a, a sort of review paper and that came back with reviewers' comments so I had to deal with that as well. So it was just like everything was, yeah. these are the weeks where you will be busy, you will do stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. I also I applied for a job um, from a much more comfortable position from... <laughs> That
1: one of being a white male is what you're saying?
0: that, That of a white male being on parental leave with no actual necessity right now to get a job. Like my plan was to start applying in six months time. And there was this one job offer that sounded too good to let it go. So I applied for it. And they invited me for an interview, which brings me to the point of choices. Like after the interview, if it sounds nice, do I cut my parental leave short for a job that sounds really cool? Or do I try to, like, start a job as late as possible? Mm-hmm. Or do I let the job go because I actually really want to do parental leave? Um, but yeah, uh, but for now, be- be- before I've been to the interview, I can't really say much more about that. Because, like, it's also no the idea. thing,
1: and I'm, I'm finding myself, like, I, I get really excited about this these job opportunities. Like, you talk to somebody, you have an interview, and you're like, oh my god, this sounds amazing. And you get really excited. And then I start, like, Googling the cost of apartments in that city or like yeah. w- if I can ride to the university or whether the, the, the sports yeah. center is and then I'm like this <laughs> is you're committing too much to these ideas when they I haven't even had an interview yet like I haven't yeah, yeah.
0: it could even mean that they like you but you don't like them
1: it could also be and this is something very hard to tell I think with a boss or with yeah With a situation you haven't been in before. I mean, how do you tell? Like, you just... You really can't, I think.
0: Just today, I listened to the podcast, the Career Conversations podcast, um, that we've been... Can we say that already?
1: I guess, maybe. Um, Maybe? No? Yes.
0: We're just saying it now. (laughs) It happened. um, um, yeah, we've been uh, we've been doing an interview with them um, last week. Stephanie it, interviewed us. Yeah, Stephanie interviewed us and it will still take a little bit until this is published because she has a backlog. She has like s- stuff queued up. Um, but I listened to the recent episode. It was just released, I don't know, yesterday, today um, about red flags, about your supervisor. It's actually quite interesting. It's oh, just like yeah, a seven yeah. minute short bit. So Career Conversations is a podcast if you want to have a listen.
1: Um, I saw that come up on Instagram and I really wanted to check it out. Like, yeah. She was like saying, it's, it's very hard to change the the environment even once you're there even like if you have power so maybe the best thing is to avoid those people and yeah I mean yeah. that would be nice if just like maybe if there's like a literal red flag you could stick in somebody <laughs> so like nobody would come to their group if they were like some sort of psychopath
0: are there like these signs where it says like criminals put on your door to say like here's something there are criminals you
1: can, in your neighborhood like
0: no no like from from criminals between each other like robbers or like uh, people who break and enter that they they have like their own code that they put on the door somewhere and then like other people could come and see oh there's something valuable here it's it's worth the trouble or oh, watch out there's a dog or something like that so
1: like what's bringing to my mind is like lamb's blood but I think that's only if you're like a Jewish <laughs> family and you don't want the angel no. of death to come into your house. I don't
0: know if these actually were ever in use I just know them as sort of these tales that are also like s- often yeah. slightly xenophobic like, where they say like oh look out it's like Romanian ba- uh, gangs that go around and have like this secret code on your door so they know that it can atta- like break in I don't know if these really exist, but it would be good to put something like that on a lap door of a like horrible supervisor. <laughs> just have like a secret sign somewhere that like other people applying can see that and be like, oh, okay, <laughs>
1: <laughs> dun, 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 like back out like a yes. cat backing out of. Anything. So
0: I just I, I left I left it oven on, sorry sorry I
1: <laughs> gotta go gotta go fast. <laughs> Hi. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so things yeah. must happen in our near future. Yarm and I will both be going to interviews and seeing what the future holds for us.
0: Yeah, it will be. It will be interesting. It will
1: be terrifying. Uh. I'm so terrified. <laughs> I just cut you short. I'm That's so sorry. It's fine. I had nothing important to say here. <laughs>
0: It's the paper of the
1: week. It's the paper of the week. It's
0: the paper of the week. It's my paper this week. Um, I prepared the paper. Uh, Plants' circadian <laughs> rhythms regulate the effectiveness of a glyphosate-based herbicide by Fiona E. Belbin and from the lab of Anthony and Do- uh, Dot, uh, published in Nature Communications. It's open access, published in the 16th of August this year, 2019. Um and yeah, I think I found this through Twitter, uh, where somebody said, uh, which is also pretty much in the, in the title, that the application of glyphosate has a dif- differential effect depending on the time of day when it, when it's applied, um, which is encoded in the word circadian rhythms, mm-hmm. right? This is these internal rhythms in a plant that... Um, Not
1: just in a plant, Joram.
0: In two plants
1: in many organisms in, in,
0: uh, yeah in many organisms many higher organisms i don't know how many like single cell cellular organisms have i think that. like
1: even single cell algae and stuff do have this so it's it's yeah. very highly conserved the yeah yeah
0: and it's pretty much like an internal metabolic uh, or molecular oscillator that works like a clock, a clock and that gets then synced through different metabolic mechanisms with outside and with the environment yeah. so in plants it's often day and uh, light day and light and night and dark
1: <laughs> but the idea of is that something that's truly circadian and not, is not just influenced by the lights turning on and um, the light's turning off again it becomes entrained so then yeah. if you then put for example the plants into just light or just dark so you stop having these fluctuations of light these um, whatever the metabolites or the proteins or whatever's been exp- are coming up in the circadian way should keep on showing their oscillation should keep changing.
0: It's something that in humans we often call our internal clock, right? When you travel abroad and then you'd say like your internal clock um and uh, it's not adjusted to the environment and you, and I you get that's jet why I see your microbes
1: so. didn't they say that like it's like
0: yeah i think in humans they found that you can fight jet lag through your eating, diet yeah to like eating to the like preparing to eat in the time zone that you arrive right yes. that you already eat. wake
1: up at 3am in the morning eat and then you're prepared for like breakfast yeah. in australia just in as a general, general rule fact. and <laughs> i'm <laughs> even going if to you're australia not at the end of the year so <laughs> i should prepare myself now right <laughs>
0: just like every night 3am very tired just like
1: ah, i, don't I mean like jet lag is not that much of a problem so like yeah. to prepare yourself for more than a couple of days beforehand is already like more of a cost of just dealing <laughs> yeah. with jet lag for two days like
0: yeah, yeah but still we have this inner, inner clock where we where we feel like in uh, internal rhythms independent how much sunlight we see during the day actually and in plants it's yeah as you said it's similar um, they there are certain processes that still oscillate. That still come up in a twenty-four hour rhythm, more or less. Like sometimes they say it's twenty-five hours, um, but in a twenty-four hour-ish uh, schedule, they come up and down um, and and cycle through that. And um, yeah, and now this seems to have an effect on the response to uh, herbicide treatment, like glyphosate. And to begin that, I just have to. Um, I wrote down a few numbers to just show how important um, any progress in the area of herbicide is because um, globally we spend 11 billion dollars every year on glyphosate-based plant herbicides and that corresponds to 8.6 billion kilograms per year globally so Mm -hmm. it's like a ton and if you imagine if you just have (laughs) actually more than a ton ton. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's, uh, well a, done, Jor- <laughs> it's a figurative ton <laughs> it's a figurative <laughs> it's, ton and it's, it's more
1: than a literal ton so <laughs> yeah it's
0: <laughs> 8.6 million tons um, so it's it's a lot it's what I want to say and even if if we would waste 10% of that, because we apply the herbicide at the wrong time of day when it could be more effective at a different mm-hmm. time of day, it has a massive uh, effect um, and we could save a lot of resources and essentially also the impact on the environment. Um, if we don't waste uh, the, the glyphosate treatment on ineffective times of day, mm-hmm. then we also like reduce the stress on the ecosystem as a total. Um, And this is pretty much what they looked at in in this paper, what is the best time, and then they also tried to uh, find a reason for this um, timing. Why is this certain time of day um, the best? And as a start, they they did uh, some transcript analysis um, in Arabidopsis, so they looked at the expression levels um, uh, of... The, the entire genome of the uh, of all the transcripts uh, available under certain conditions and in this case this was um, they looked at transcripts that respond either to glyphosate so you have can uh, create a comparison experiment between like glyphosate treated plants and non-treated plants and then you look at the transcripts uh, and then you see everything that reacts when glyphosate is uh, is added to the plant then this is your set for glyphosate and Mm -hmm. then they looked at the set for circadian rhythm so anything that is uh, related to circadian rhythm uh, transcripts Um, and then they have these two pools and then um, they uh, looked at the overlap of these two and found 137 transcripts and um, many of those were just from the annotation related to auxin transport. Um, and that was the first hint that they got that there might be something with auxin. And from that on, they, they started doing um, uh, pretty straightforward treatment experiments and they set up an experimental system because whenever you do something like this, you need a readout, right? You mm-hmm. need, you have your treatment, in this case, the glyphosate, glyphosate at different yeah. times of day and now you need a readout um, to see what's going on and um the system that they used here is the uh, cotyledon elongation um so the, or cotyledon length and then from that they derived uh-huh. the elongation speed
1: hypocotyl length uh, hy- hypocotyl length
0: hypocotyl yeah
1: so like when the seedling first comes out it has like a kind of stemmy bit and then it has like two tiny little leaves the tiny little leaves are called cotyledons and then the stemmy yeah. bit is like the hypocotyl
0: yeah and, um, just to get it out of the way, the best time for glyphosate application is at dawn. Um, so mm-hmm. when just at, at, the end of the night, uh, uh, when the sun comes up, um, the plant is most uh, susceptible, or at least Arabidopsis is most susceptible at the readout of the hypocotyledon length, um, Hypocotyl. hypocotyl length, sorry. Yeah. A hypocotyl length, um. At dawn compared to dusk where it's the least effective okay and the factor is 1.5 so it's actually quite a bit okay. factor. so it's 1.5 times more effective in the morning uh, at dawn than in the evening at dusk
1: so i guess actually this is relevant because when you are spraying glyphosate onto the field even though the plants that like the crop is growing up you're trying to kill the, the younger weeds which would be just emerging so they would be yeah. young young plants okay mm-hmm.
0: yeah um, but it's also, this is just a very good um, experimental system in the lab that was done on agar plates and is very easy to observe in the lab. Um, and that's why they chose that over other things. I mean, it's a sort of downstream thing. Like glyphosate, we, we talked about this in other episodes, um, is targeting um, a synthesis pathway for amino acids, for mm-hmm. specific aromatic amino acids um and so as a downstream effect of knocking out a part of the building blocks for the plant the downstream effect is this uh, hypocotyl length um uh re- reduction it's um, kind
1: of a general growth readout, like
0: yeah yeah and so i th- i mean it's definitely true on the field it has this this uh, effect that you have these young plants that emerging are killing, that, that you're killing but at the same time on the field you also have effects that the glyphosate stays there for longer like mm-hmm. it's not uh, it's not a sh- as sharp a treatment as you have in the lab, where you add it um, to the medium at a specific time point. I mean, that also lingers. Um, how,
1: how do they how do they put it? Is is in liquid culture? I it's think they, hydroponics or uh,
0: they did it in, on, on agar plates. Actually, I okay. didn't look in uh, in the way they applied. it. I think I in the said, field,
1: do you normally spray it or yeah? It's yeah. usually
0: sprayed um, in with like a mix of compounds that uh, also. Um, like glyphosate is hydrophobic and so it doesn't actually like to be mixed with water and stick on the plant surface. So it is there's then also some additives in there mm-hmm. that reduce the surface tension and so on. Um and I think this is also what they used here because they say that they they use a specific detergent um to, uh, to in, in the mix, which is not what is usually used on the field because it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. Um I'm just trying to find the I found the glyphosate formulation but not the application yet in the methods but anyway um but they use comparable um, concentrations to what is used in agriculture they always indicate it here as like grams per hectare which is a little bit ridiculous for a plate yeah. experiment but it comes from the fact that they use it in relationship to what is used uh, in general in the field um or actually i i just seen a method say even used um like an eighth of the concentration what is used on the field so 840 grams per mm-hmm. hectare Uh, is typical and they use around 100 to 200 grams per hectare compared so lower amounts yeah anyway um, back to the results because i don't find right now how exactly applied but i think they applied it to the green areas uh, with a with a liquid solution Um, yeah so now they saw that they had this reduction in hypocotyl length and um, they did that at the day... Th- um, they also did this application at day three or day five after germination and They saw the same effect. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little bit less pronounced um, in day, day five, five because <laughs> they were already longer.
1: So that's the thing I would also worry. Like, I mean, at day three, if you do the treatment early in the morning versus in the afternoon, the one in the afternoon, the plant's already got like half an extra day of growth on it. So then it could also just be... Um, hardier by that stage it's like i mean yeah. the bigger did they kind of control for that by putting the plants they, into light at the different times or some i mean they, they you said can't bec- really control for that very easily right
0: they said um because they did this experiment also at day five um and saw the same trends with like a little bit less uh pronounced effects like the hypocotyl length reduction was not as strong at day five as it was but in to, i don't mean three. to
1: criticize their paper <laughs> i'm sure I, I haven't read it so um but to me that would actually say exactly what I, I mean like so if you treat it in the morning of day three it's it's a three-day old plant but if you treat yeah. it in the evening it's like a three and a half day yeah. and the difference between three and three and a half days may be enough to make the the plant stronger that it's more resistant um yeah. to the treatment and then of course that would mean that at five versus five and a half you would see diff- less difference between the five and the five and a half because like percentage-wise of growth is less difference between five do you know what i mean like yeah. five and yeah
0: but it's uh, it's it's true um, they just what they what they say about that is that they see the same difference between dawn and dusk mm-hmm. from like dawn day 3 and dusk day 3 as dawn day 5 and dusk day 5 um, but it's true that the effect becomes less pronounced and probably because the plant doesn't grow as much anymore at, mm. at this rate like at this uh, stage or it gets hardier and more robust against the treatment um, so that's definitely an effect um, uh, but but what they conclude from that that it works independent of the current uh, growth rate. So, like, like the okay. later plants, they grow slower than the uh, than in the beginning. Um, and or is it? Th- I think it's gr- because they, they saw less reduction. Um, so mm-hmm. it's just it's sort of putting a break on the gro- on, on the growth rate um, uh, when you apply glyphosate, and um, that break hits harder in the beginning than later on. Um, but then they continued to work with the day three treatment and, um, now, uh, they looked at, at more transcripts in response to that, like at the, at the dusk and the dawn time points, and they found, uh, auxin related transcripts that were downregulated at dawn and upregulated at dusk. So they seemed to react to that when glyphosate was treated, mm-hmm. uh, at, um, in comparison to no treatment, uh, and now the question is, how can auxin, which is a very important uh, signaling molecule in the plant, right? Mm-hmm. It's involved in... Everything. Lots, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just, pretty much everywhere.
1: It's one of my rules, like, stay away from auxin research because yeah. it's like, it's so complicated.
0: And uh, so it also plays a role with, um, or is linked to glyphosate in, in um, some way. And I hypothesize here that it's uh, it can be several ways. It can, like, one thing can be that glyphosate... Um, Uh, makes tryptophan and tryptophan is a precursor for auxin so uh, net glyphosate makes the shikamate pathway which the glyphosate blocks exactly Mm -hmm. the glyphosate blocks the production of tryptophan Mm. and tryptophan is needed to make auxin so if you block that pathway then you can't make as much auxin and then you have this important molecule in a uh, reduced amount and then everything around it reacts and so these transcripts uh, also react to that um
1: so they're kind of um, trying to like recover the fact that there's something lost by like pumping up the gene expression to...
0: Yeah, yeah. at least at, uh, at dusk, they, they go up. Um, at dawn, they go down these transcripts. So, uh, and also this is just mm. two out of many transcripts. Mm. So um, there is uh, the YUC9, UCC9 um, transcript that uh, is related in the production of auxin that okay. goes down in the morning when glyphosate is treated and up at dusk. And um, there is another transcript that reacts to auxin. So downstream of auxin, like a target of a signaling pathway from auxin. um, EXPA8. And that goes down at dawn and up at dusk. But they don't really go further into like the whys of these. So I don't want to like go speculate Mm. too much. But you just see like auxin related stuff reacts when you apply um, glyphosate. Um, and from that on they did more experiments um, now they, they left uh, glyphosate aside for a bit and they now use an auxin inhibitor um, and did that treatment at the same time like the same experiment at different time points and see when is this auxin inhibitor the most efficient and it's also the most efficient at dawn and least efficient at dusk so mm-hmm. it seems to have uh, like it shows the same pattern as glyphosate um, and then they used another herbicide d diflufenso- Zopyr? No idea. (laughs) Yeah, I I have no idea how you pronounce Z-O-P-Y-R properly. Eh? Um, But another herbicide that was also where the the mechanism is not fully known yet, but it is uh, hypothesized to also affect auxin signaling. um, And that also shows the same pattern. So now you have three compounds that you put on the plant um, where glyphosate there is a good theory why it would affect auxin an actual auxin inhibitor and another herbicide that is believed to uh, influence auxin and all three of them show the same pattern more efficient at dawn than at dusk they also looked at cell death and uh, indicators for cell death um, under glyphosate treatment also more at dawn than at dusk and yeah all of that together draws a picture that um, the the time point is very important for the application of of herbicides mm-hmm. um, especially in this case anything that is related to auxin should be applied rather in the early hours of the day than in the late hours uh, although there is one like one paragraph in there that sort of puts a caveat to all of this because it has brassica napus and uh, sinapis avensis two crop plants brassica napus is rapeseed right um, actually, I didn't Google them to be sure. I'm always terrible. Anapsis
1: is um, mustard, or?
0: Um, yeah, I think. Which is it? Arvensis? Arvensis, yeah.
1: Mustard. Yeah. Field mustard.
0: Field mustard and uh, brassica. These are
1: also cousins of Arabidopsis, basically. They're all in this brassicaceae family.
0: Yeah. And Br- brassica napus is rapeseed. And... There, um, the effect is much less pronounced. So they could not replicate the thing that they saw in Arabidopsis okay. with the dawn versus dusk treatment. Um, they only go in very briefly into it. They're just saying, like, look, in these two species, we don't see the same strong effect, uh, the same like difference between the dawn and dusk treatment. No significant differences. Um, and so they, their conclusion is that species matters as well. So there is the in in the Arabidopsis hypocotyl length. Uh, experiment that they did they clearly see this effect Mm -hmm. but um when they go then into crop plants at least in these two crop plants um the effect is not as much as observable
1: i guess they're all oil seeds so i would expect that so like with at that stage the the growth is coming from like the stored Mm -hmm. um what's what's in the 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 seeds they're all oil seeds so they should have similar kind of Growth patterns in the first stages of life before they start photosynthesizing. So I would assume they would respond in similar ways, and the circadian rhythm for sure should be quite conserved amongst. I yeah. mean, this is really.
0: Yeah, it can just be that they have uh, es- escape mechanisms that this mm. this effect on auxin doesn't hurt them as much because they have ways around it. They are more robust in the way of. They can oh. get the tryptophan or like the the auxin precursors from from other breakdowns like from alternative pathways um,
1: but it doesn't i mean the, the the testing on crop plants is becoming more and more common in the field, which is it is good. I mean now it used to be that we could only do our our research on like model species which usually don't have as much relevance to, to yeah. crops um so I think people are like reviewers are asking for this more and more like don't just show me in a rubber show me in something like tomato or something that's actually used by humans but in this case like the thing they're targeting with the glyphosate in the end is not the crop it's the other plants so it would be better to test it on like a, a common weed species mm-hmm. than than test I mean the the whole point is that the the crops have will be engineered to have resistance to the glyphosate. Like that,
0: unless you use it for for drying um, in crop systems. That's also sometimes used ah, in, okay. in grains, especially. I think also in rapeseed that you use it at the end of the growth season before harvest, and then you spray it, and the plants dry out, and then you can more easily harvest the grain or the in this case the oil seed. Okay. Um, but this is like this practice is not as standard as the treatment for for uh, herbs, so it's definitely it's definitely true that we should way mo- look way more at like wild species grown and and between crops um than testing the crops themselves mm-hmm. um because they're usually not the target um and uh, the thing that i um that they mentioned in the paper that I quite liked or found interesting is this the idea of agricultural chronotherapy so Mm -hmm. take time into account when you apply your treatments to the field because there's many more than just herbicides Mm -hmm. like there's growth enhancers and um, uh, fertilizers and so on and all of these probably have a like a differential response at a different time of day and you can boost the effectivity of them by applying that at the right time of day Yeah, I
1: think that the idea of of time has been around for a while, but like in these larger scales, so like the right, like part of the growing season or the right, like before the rains, after the rains, this kind of thing. Um, But now it's narrowed down.
0: Yeah. I don't know how practical that is because um, just the application of a herbicide yeah, to a field takes time in itself. Um, so I don't know how feasible no, it man, actually is. No, man, it'll
1: be drones in the future.
0: Even drones, like, okay, maybe if you have a large <laughs> swarm of drones really and they just fast like, drones. fly over exactly at nine in the morning, just like <laughs> boom.
1: <laughs> well, like like a reticulation system with water, but instead of with watering, it's just yeah. like glyphosating yeah. everything.
0: Yeah.
1: Hmm, interesting. Yeah,
0: so that's um, that's my paper. Um, you can find the link to the paper in the show notes. It's open access. Have a look yeah. at it. Um, they did uh, several more experiments that I skipped now. Um,
1: to confirm the findings, basically. Yeah.
0: Pretty much to have redundant findings. Uh, yeah. Not so redundant,
1: to support their findings.
0: <laughs> no, to have, not, yeah, redundant is the wrong way, right? Uh, they supported their,
1: exper- with, uh, their experiments with, with yeah, our, their with diff- experiments. Yeah, but they findings with
0: other Yeah, multiple strategies in parallel to support the same idea yeah which is a very good way of doing science not just to have one experiment and then draw all your conclusions yeah. from that
1: <laughs> all right my favorite plant yo so this week i have two favorite plants um the first one is Poseidonia oceanica, um, and that's kind of the the more like known or usual of the plants. And the second one is Simodacea, which is kind of a family, um, Yeah, and that's slightly less known. Um, so I just want to say that I cheated this week, and I got somebody else to do my homework for me. Ah. Um, yeah, I was talking to somebody really great on Instagram. Her name is um, Thalassandra. And she is working as um, like a marine biologist, basically um, working on these species. Um, She's specifically working on the Simodosia species and Simodosia nodosa is her kind of species that she loves. And I kind of was like, hey, do you have any fun facts that you might know about it? And so she came up with something. So um, just to give a little bit of background, um, Poseidonia oceanica and also the um, Simodacea, I'm sure I'm saying those both wrong. They're seagrasses, so if you look at them, they they look like kelp basically. Mm-hmm. But there's a very important difference between seagrasses and kelp, which your is now going to explain to you. All.
0: Uh, I think kelp is free-floating and seagrass is tethered to the ground.
1: Kelp can also tether sometimes. Um, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just telling him he's wrong, really. Um, no, again, it has like these little um. They're not called roots; they have a different name, but um. Yeah, so seagrasses are actually like plants and they're flowering plants. They're angiosperms. Ah. So they've basically gone back to the water. So um, kelp is like algae species and um, seagrasses are flowering plants. And so you can look up this um, Poseidonia oceanica. I'm so sorry, guys. But is it Um, called like
0: after Poseidon, the god of the ocean? And and then then after
1: ocean, the ocean of the ocean? Yeah, the ocean
0: god of the oceans.
1: Yeah, so it's also commonly known as Neptune grass or okay. less romantically, Mediterranean tapeweed. Um, and it just looks like any kind of seagrass that you would see growing on the bottom of the sea. Um, but it, it, it normally tends to um, kind of reproduce clonally. That's just a lot easier, especially mm-hmm. if you can imagine the the problem of pollination um, underwater. Yeah, we haven't,
0: like, we t- I like to talk about pollinators a lot, um, but we haven't talked about fish pollinators yet.
1: Yeah, so, so <laughs> and I were like, Discussing like bees with a little like scuba diving gear on, like going down. So yeah, to me,
0: it's like hairy fish.
1: She said like eighty percent of the time they just um do like kind of budding stuff. So they do asexual reproduction, but then like twenty percent of the time, they make flowers, and then from these flowers they make little fruits, and um the fruits are super cool. So actually, in um in Italy, the fruits are called the olives of the sea. Uh huh. Um, And that's because there are these little balls that actually float. So I'll put some links in the show notes. But they make the fruit and then the fruit floats to the surface. And the fruit is green and it photosynthesizes up on the surface, gets a little bit of energy. And then as it kind of like matures more, it comes back down again. And now it has some energy to like start putting his roots in and like grabbing onto the, the soil. How cool is that?
0: Yeah, but why doesn't that get the energy from the parent plant? Parent, it sounds like lazy ex- parenting, yeah, it sounds like extra steps or like yeah, lazy parenting is just like, go be on your own, <laughs> like make your own uh, make yourself uh make your own living,
1: well, I guess it's a nice like this floating is a really nice way to make it be able to go a very long distance yeah, away, that's true. um, and then maybe like being able to photosynthesize on the journey is not necessarily a bad thing, like to to, to actually something I now.
0: recently not not learned, but it brought, was brought back to my attention that the fact that you see uh, coconut trees all around um like polynesia and so on where you have lots of these small islands and like you have this stereotypical image of an island and you have some coconut trees on there Mm. um which is not far from the truth because the coconuts they float and Mm. that's why they are so spread out and you find them on all sorts of coastal lines in the area and yeah floating seeds is a major advantage yeah so that's a good reason why they do that then
1: Okay, so this is, yeah, um, I, again, I will show you some pictures of, like, this this very cool life, this reproductive cycle. But um, uh, Thalassandra, who I was talking to, is actually not working on the, the Poseidonis Poseidonia, oh my goodness. Um, she's working on what she said was the cousin of Poseidonia. She said Poseidonia would be, like, the influence in the seagrass world, and um, Simodacia is, like, the hipster cousin. But, um. <laughs> There's some studies that say that simodicea might better be able to handle high temperatures and also changes in salinity, which are obviously big issues that are going to come through in the next Mm -hmm. years with the global um, warming. So um, it has quite a high optimal temperature for growth already around like 30 degrees or even 35 degrees, um, which is kind of crazy. And just... um, to link it back to our, our standard for the show at this point, it's also found near Australia, so <laughs> <laughs> it's another Australian plant. Um, but yeah, super big <laughs> thanks um, to Alessandra for giving me, like literally just doing my homework for me um, uh, so and giving so me super jealous. cool facts, yeah, and she just was pretty passionate about what she was talking about uh, and saying, you know, these are awesome species, they grow fast. Um, they can because they grow fast they can take up a lot of um carbon so they can be like a carbon sink they make home for animals like it's it's just like this whole ecosystem that's helped being formed by these um seagrasses and we were saying like honestly when we think of plants we really don't think of seagrasses like we kind of put them in the the kelpie algae um, yeah. Section and but they're yeah, flowering plants. They're not just plot I mean, uh, this is not some common moss man. What, this what is does like f- the, what does an underwater flower look like? Just like a regular flower, but it looks like but, a boring. Regu- I mean, it's not very pretty, I guess. Like, and honestly, I didn't look into how it was um,
0: pollinated.
1: Poseida. Poseidonia.
0: Ocean.
1: Oceania.
0: Oceanica. I mean, it just looks
1: small and white. Oceania. Oceanica.
0: Oceanica. Um, Yeah, it doesn't, on this scheme here, there's no flowers. Just write flower there. And you at home, you can do the same if you have access to a machine (laughs) that can access Google or any other search engine.
1: If you're driving, maybe don't. Otherwise, sure.
0: Yeah, if you're driving, try your best with Siri.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's yeah, like it's just like
0: to, like these flower. I don't know if it's just the flower buds, but they, to me, they look like just budding flowers before they're actual flowers. But it could be. I mean, there's no real reason to have nice and colorful flowers with petals and so on because these are usually made to attract pollinators. And if this guy doesn't really need pollinators,
1: well, I mean, I don't, I don't think the, I don't think the pollen are just floating into the world, right? I think there must be something help. I don't know. I.
0: I mean, there could ah, be selfing. I should have
1: asked this. They could be selfing, of course. That makes sense.
0: Yeah, but still... Um,
1: but they can already reproduce asexually. Like, why self? Like, the whole point of putting all the effort into making a flower is that you get some, like, outcrossing. I mean, you still get the meiosis, where you get, like, the... Yeah, the crossing over It's like, that. a little
0: bit better than cloning. A clonal reproduction. But, yeah, sure, it would be better to get some, like, exchange of genetic information.
1: Nobody's telling me, what is a pollinator? <laughs> <laughs> just don't understand... Oh yeah, so the Simodosea also I think lives in quite shallow waters compared to the Poseidonia, which is one of the reasons it's it's can deal with these hotter temperatures mm. probably and the changes in salinity more. I think that's part of part of uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: That's Very <laughs> cool. Yeah. I did it's I'm always amazed when like a type of plant is brought to my attention that I just completely forgot about or like was ignorant about. Yeah. Um, because yeah. Shame Turns enough. out I'm not that often underwater. Um okay that brings us to the next segment where I don't have a jingle for yet because I tried actually try to to like redo some of our jingles and it turns out I'm just terrible at it.
1: You know that this is a website called Fiverr where you pay somebody money.
0: Don't get me started on gig economy.
1: <laughs> I mean <sighs> Yeah.
0: all right i just it's just i just have to you like, don't
1: want to support independent artists here
0: yeah independent self-employed people competing to be the lowest bidder for your job um no i don't want i don't really want to support that although actually i thought about that <laughs> because i'm so terrible at jingles anyway the next segment <laughs> with a way too Also,
1: if you do our jingles nobody's getting any money is that better than like us giving somebody money <laughs> Like, as far as like moral capitalistic it's actually, it's morals it's actually a good
0: it's it's a good question it's it's a good question do you like help them or not by giving them like below minimum wage maybe just
1: don't choose the cheapest one yeah like pay a fair price don't just like decide not to I use I have actually the, no
0: idea how it works I th- always thought Fiverr is that you you, you don't pay this, it's
1: not 5 euros anymore it's not like it's like off oh,
0: no, but I thought you'd describe what you want and then you have people like writing, hey, I do this for 20 and then I do this for $15 for you. And then the system says here, $15, you get the thing. I have no idea how this works. But I, don't I, think uh, to. I once listened to a good talk about it where some people said how abusive this entire system is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that made me like very put off by the idea of taking part in it.
1: Sometimes I think you listen to too many negative things though.
0: Maybe, but I also, I don't use Uber I don't use like like other things like Fudora or like the other like gig economy things where you have like self employed people working okay. in a big system all coordinated by a central place, but not yeah, being it able to we just to
1: shut down in Berlin, I wanted to look. do you know why that is
0: no to be honest, I have no idea why um they have maybe a- it's just they i think the margins are super tight in this sector, and they might have just run out of the of money like. They mm. couldn't make it work. There was too much competition. There were also, like, two other delivery services that were combined recently. I don't know which one. But but anyway, I think, like, the era is really hard to compete in and it will just eventually people fall off there. Uh, like, whole companies don't make the cut and hmm. can't turn it profit. Um, yeah. <laughs> from from that um, to our segment about diversity in research in plant science, Um Last week, uh, Tegan introduced uh, that segment. Actually, I forgot already who we talked about last week. Um, let me just quickly say what we d- wh- wh- how we started this, because I th- I think it's nice that we do this.
1: Dun, 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 dun,
0: dun, dun. I like how you're n- totally not helping me with this, being the one who introduced the person It last could be, time. because I
1: also don't remember. It could be, actually, no, I, I do remember. Um, Barbara McClintock. A- there we go.
0: <laughs> Barbara McClintock was the first one in our uh, little series.
1: Transposons. And,
0: and today I want to talk about Johanna Döbereiner. Eh? Um, uh, she was born in 1924 and died in the year 2000. And jo- Johanna Döbereiner um, was a plant researcher uh, born in um, the former Czechoslovakia. And um, after the war, she had to first immigrate to Germany. And from there on, she went to Brazil, where she did most of her work, actually all of her um, like important work she did in Brazil. And the thing that she was um, working on are um, nitrogen fixing microbes and usually when we uh, talk about these we think about legumes Mm -hmm. um, because they have these these nodules at the roots where you have nitrogen fixing bacteria uh, living and they fix nitrogen from the air turn this into uh, organic uh, nitrogen that then can be taken up by the plant Mm. um and this was mostly what people cared about for a long time or or knew about or, or thought was the most important and um she uh, discovered a thing called associative nitrogen uh, fixation Um, uh, or I think associative nitrogen fixation is in general like the thing with the bacteria growing there. But she looked at non-legume crops, um, especially cereal grasses. And um, she discovered a lot there. She took took lots of samples from Brazilian soils and discovered new species of bacteria that are able to fix nitrogen there Um, and studied like she... she, um, Bred used that knowledge to bred soybeans uh, on nitrogen-starved um, soil, so that the soybeans then have to sort of interact with microbes or more have to be like mm-hmm. more attractive to microbes to fix the nitrogen from them f- from the air. And with that, she managed to um, uh, breed uh, very important crop varieties um, oh, wow. that helped make uh, Brazil one of the largest soy producers in the world um, through. Um, yeah, through these... these so,
1: selective breeding program. Too. Yeah. Yeah, wow, cool.
0: Through understanding the, um, the relationship between nit- nitrogen-fixing microbes and non-legume crops. And yeah, for that, she, she uh, received several uh, prizes. She was nominated for a Nobel Prize for Chemistry uh, that she didn't get, but still a nomination is quite something. Um, and she was uh, honored a, a lot in Brazil with different mm. uh, Brazilian prizes and also international uh, research prizes. Um, yeah and uh, she was um, she came this was one thing that stood out for me because I didn't know this exists um, she's a member of the Vatican Pontifical Academy of Science which, which has only 75 members throughout the world which seems to be a very highly distinguished um, research uh, prize yeah. Uh, o- award yeah so that's Johanna Döbereiner um,
1: Johanna Döbereiner
0: an important researcher in the field of nitrogen fixation. And,
1: and what was her time period? Uh,
0: 1924 to the year 2000. Okay. With uh, I think her, um, a lot of her work done, uh, like started in the 50s, and then she worked from there on. And in the 70s, she made some major breakthroughs, uh, which were also helped by uh, the petroleum crisis, um, where the price of chemical fertilizers went up, so you couldn't just dump. Like chemical oh, okay, nitrogen on yeah. fields, and suddenly it became really important to understand the interaction between microbes and plants. Um, and yeah, she was a big, uh, yeah, big force in that f- uh, research field. Cool. And um, yeah, that brings us to. I. I
1: <laughs> we have to work on our segue. I think that's like. Yeah,
0: I have to clean up my soundboard here. I have too many things that are like like. Yeah, I have to organize this it, to the game. and then I can just click on it instead so of just like rambling on, out which of the, the way buttons way I have to press.
1: fun stuff fun stuff um somehow fun so i think we've talked about um project deal previously on the podcast and this is basically where a whole ton of research institutions in germany um Mm -hmm. it says 700 here so it's a huge consortium basically went on strike against um some of the large publishing companies and said we need to renegotiate how things happen when papers are behind a paywall Um, And I think in in June already, or a few months back, they got some success with Wiley. So um, Wiley Publishing House, which is one of the biggest, um, had to renegotiate how they make German-funded data publications accessible to different German institutions. And um, I think yesterday, as I'm speaking, but so it's um, August the 21st or the 22nd, around then, they just negotiated a deal um, with Springer Nature. Um, which is mm-hmm. again a, a very huge um, publishing house. Actually, the I says here that the one with Wiley was back in February, so even before I um, much earlier than I had thought. Um, yeah, so basically they're making it that there will be more of the stuff that's normally behind a paywall accessible to the German institutions for with better deals and. Um, for a better price as such I think even for free in some cases the problem is it doesn't make them actually open access it just means that for those institutions in Germany they are now mm-hmm. open but they're not open to the public still so yeah. you can discuss the pros and cons it's showing evolution of um, the journals it's not the perfect situation yeah. um,
0: it's sort of taking like it's a smart move because like the people complaining are the universities and mm-hmm. now the universities like it weakens their stance to say, hey, we want to have open access for everyone when their claim usually was like, hey, we need our researchers to get access to the publications. yeah, And they get that now, which is good, which is really good because now like also groups or institutes with um, less money have more access in general to, to publications. Yeah, and
1: especially like the universities because some of these, I mean, these subscription fees can be quite high. Um, yeah, And I guess you can say also the... I mean, we can have discussions about the public reading these papers. I think there needs to be some bridge in between that which makes the the papers anyway more accessible because I think a lot of the papers they're not in accessible form. It doesn't mean the public shouldn't have access. They absolutely should still be able to see the the original research, but it's not always accessible anyway. anyway, yeah. um the point was this is something that's showing that the the way that um publications are dealt with in academia are kind of changing. And in this article, they also mentioned that there was a similar deal um made with the Netherlands Um, so there's some stuff moving around um, for better or for worse the world is changing
0: no I think overall like I don't want to be too negative about this because overall I think it's a it's good that there's this movement and it's good that they came to like a first agreement and then you can build on that And you can say, like, okay, now that um, we have access, sort of, like, university open access, maybe we can, like, stepwise increase the the range of people who are applicable to this. Um, And, like, chances are good if you're interested in a paper, you might know somebody at some university that can help you out Mm. um, with a link.
1: Um. I mean, I should also note that this doesn't apply to all of the ones underneath the spring in nature. So spring in nature is really huge. So some of the big ones like nature or nature medicine are not covered um, mm-hmm. under the deal. So it doesn't apply to everything. Um, but yeah. it's a start. And I think, I, I don't know if we've mentioned this before, this idea. I think Project S is um, something that's been happening in the background. And this is this discussion, I think, in Germany, but it might be a European thing, that some um, large funding agencies are going to put a condition of their funding that whoever takes that funding has to publish open access. Yeah. And they also cannot publish in journals which have both open and closed accesses. So some journals are completely open. All of their stuff is available. Others are com- mostly mostly behind a paywall. But there's quite a few where you can pay extra money to have your publication become open. Um and I think the the project S is quite strict. If I, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm trying to remember properly. And at the moment, the ones where you can pay for the open are considered closed on that basis, yeah. which um, means that those journals are kind of out of the of the running. So I think this is also shifting the di- dynamics of how people are going to be working yeah. in the future.
0: Yeah. Yeah. but It's still it's 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 good that we see that we see this progress, um, and that we yeah. don't just see like hard standstill like of of two hard fronts that don't want to talk to each other or they don't want to move um
1: there's some evolution happening right like i mean it's it's adapt or die for both i guess so
0: yeah so yeah i don't i don't have too many fun things this week because um (laughs) the main news that's dominating my news feeds pretty much wherever i'm looking is the big fires in the amazon forests that just this week um came to global attention for some weird reason I don't see in German newspapers um, as much of a coverage as I, as I see on Twitter
1: and I'm also seeing a lot of people say this has been happening for weeks and there wasn't coverage yeah. like, it wasn't getting out like it was kind of
0: and also apparently so so first of all what's happening um, what came now to, to a global attention and there was a, an outcry was the fact that there is massive uh, fires burning in the Amazon forests and uh, where previously there was uh, from the Brazilian government there were some attempts to conserve the forest, the rainforest. Um, the Brazilian government stopped any support for these initiatives. They pretty much said, like, we're not going to stop anyone doing anything to the rainforest. Um, there was even the fact that uh, in Brazil, the the, the president. Um, uh, kicked uh, like fired uh, a lead head researcher for a climate change uh, institute that uh, or was it a rainforest protection institute Not but, a, sure. but the main researcher like the head of this institute was fired for saying what is consensus in the scientific world of like we have climate change and the rainforest is very important as a green lung for the planet um, and for this pretty basic statement essentially he was fired by the president who is a climate change denier and um yeah and so
1: i mean by the time we release the podcast it's kind of going to be people should know about it by now i would say like i I think we shouldn't go into too much detail because you should know about it already if not really go and google hard and
0: yeah yeah and some of the things now that i that i've seen coming up around this is that several of these images that are often very drastic are uh, old like Mm -hmm. um a lot of these things have been happening for a long time yeah and there is a lot of the things that are I mean, they set these fires not for the sake of the fires, but they want to like um, erode the forest so they can have farmland mm. for like either for grazing or to grow often soybean. Um, and this thing has been happening for ages now, uh, and that's why we have so many old uh, photos of that. But from what I've heard is at least now recently, like in in the week around the 21st of August, um, is that Sao Paulo was covered in like smoke from mm. the burning forest. That's uh, why is it kind
1: a, of became main news.
0: Yeah, which is like a new level of forest destruction, and yeah, on a meta point, this thing, I just find this so deeply frustrating. I mean, we talked a lot about climate uh, climate crisis here on the podcast as well, and it's it's pretty much everywhere today, and it should be, but often you have at least the feeling that the consensus is that this is bad and we should do something about it. And then the actions to do something about it are not great or not happening that much. But this is now actively working like towards the climate crisis, like burning down this fo- this forest. Yeah,
1: I mean, again, I, I don't think I want to go into much detail today about it, but like, look, the Brazil has this huge resource but this is a a global responsibility. It's not up to them to put all of their money and all of their energy into conserving it. And we in Germany or in Australia cannot point a finger and say, you need to stop feeding your people by building farms and start conserving this land absolutely objectively the land should be conserved but that is not the responsibility of the Brazilian people or the Brazilian government to take that hit. I mean they have some responsibility but so do we. We're but not innocent in this.
0: To that there are like, international like, funds like Germany is paying for forest conservation, Canada is uh, France is and many other countries are. Not enough. Are. I
1: mean when it comes to conservation most of the money that we spend on conservation is spent locally. Like We spend the money in the place where the money is earned. So we're still not doing enough as far as and that's on us still and yeah but and i mean yeah if you're putting chopping down stuff to to build farmland you have the same thing with um in indonesia with like um the the palm trees and orangutans and that's also on everybody in the world this is a global this is all of our fault this is not
0: yeah and it's also on us that we still import from these countries from these farmlands the products Like we create a demand for them to grow these by importing soy from Brazil to feed our pigs with it. Um,
1: Yeah, the cheap, cheap price, right? Like this is like on, this is on Germany then. Yeah. I mean, it's on all, I really think, I think it's, it's very easy for us to get angry and tweet about things. But I think often there's some prejudices involved. Not necessarily racism, but there's a lot of like... um,
0: there's a big thing now privilege that privilege
1: getting into those conversations. Like the
0: Brazilian president responded to um uh, Macron from France um to who said that uh, uh I think he canceled yeah no he wanted on an international meeting wanted to put the burning of the forest on the agenda. Mm. And um I try I, I always want to mispronounce the name and I don't want to do that to the Brazilian president Bolsonaro was just googling now uh, anyway, he said this is uh, like um, a modern form of colonialism, like having European countries dictate what happens in Brazil mm. and putting international pres- uh, 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 pressure on them. And like, I d- definitely don't think that the pr- uh, president is uh, the good guy in this uh, uh, Bolsonaro is his name Bolsonaro I don't think is definitely not the good guy in this story mm. but he has a point in that we as like with the history that we have we can't simply tell Brazil what to do we can't simply it's also this
1: idea of, like, when people things. think they're helping by giving advice but they're not giving real support like this needs to yeah. be financial support and like everything that actually costs you energy you're not just pointing a finger and shouting actually
0: would you give the the government of bolsonaro money now to conserve the rainforest when they so clearly don't right now like like many of them are um drawing their support now for forest conservation at least like the money that's directly spent on like government Mm. programs in brazil because clearly there's no incentive there to use that money for good um yeah, I don't know. It's it's. I
1: mean, like Europe, you don't you you don't have to conserve anything because you already screwed it up like hundreds of years ago. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's nothing virgin here anymore. I once went to the Black Forest and I was super excited, and then a German turned to me and was like, "Yeah, this is all fake. Like yeah. these are plantations. Like they put more black trees in to make it look more black for tourists. It's yeah. like none of it is virgin forestland anymore." So, I mean.
0: Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's it's a messed up it's a messed up situation. I can't tell like I don't know. I just simply don't know how to to react to that like either politically as also personally. Yeah, I mean
1: objectively, I'm pro conservation and anti forest burning. Yeah. But morally, I don't think it's black and white, and I think we need to be careful when we're critical of this things.
0: Yeah, and we ex- absolutely have to rethink anything that from our side that has an influence on this. And in terms of like, how are we profiting from the burning of the forest, right. and how can we stop that? How can we actively not use like byproducts? And I think the palm from, oil
1: is a really good example, yeah. right? Like, I mean, we all were like, oh, poor orangutans, and like, Still, yeah. yeah. We, I mean, okay. So the other big news, which is also depressing in the plant community in the last weeks, um, has been that they have found this fungus, this um, TM4 strain. TR4. TR. Oh my goodness, tropical it's race tro- for...
0: To- tropical race. T- yeah. You
1: know what TM4 is? It's the it's my 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 thermomix. It's like this stupid German <laughs> cooking machine that I have and they have culted me so hard that it's in my brain and I literally wrote like five times TM4 on Twitter and on Facebook, uh, on Facebook and on Instagram, whatever. It anyway, um, this terrible fungus has been found, confirmed in South America where there's a lot of banana plantations. But we're also not going to talk about that because Yoram wrote something nice on the um, blog. So just um, Google yeah. plants and pipettes banana and you should find it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So maybe some good news for South America. Yeah, Um, please, please. Something nice. Um, So Chile. Um, I mentioned it because it came up on the science news, I think, um, the news stories. And two of my very close friends are from Chile. And throughout their time, they've told me that there's quite some problems with sexual harassment. um, And just like, just general kind of gender inequality. They have mentioned certain certain issues. Um, and just recently there was a bill approved by the Chilean um, Senate to fight sexual harassment in universities. So it basically requires um, that all of the universities will actually have detailed protocols saying how to respond to sexual harassment and actually defining sexual harassment and things like this, which is like mm. the, the first step for then... Um, Going forward. So it's on the back of data from 2017, which showed that um, like 40% of students, approximately in academics, have come across unsolicited attention of a sexual nature. Um, yeah. Which is obviously not great, but good that they're making a step forward. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's good. I have other good news. Yes. Um, finally, um, there's some ancient plants that can reproduce in the UK that uh, for probably some 60 million years could not uh, reproduce there. Um, and they can do that now because of global heating. <laughs> <laughs> there is, uh, on the Isle of, uh, Isle of Wight, um, there are these uh, cycads um, which oh, is yeah. a type of like ancient. Uh, I think it's it. It looks f- like a fern to me. Like yeah. it's an article on the Guardian. It doesn't go really into the the botanical. Palmy
1: detail. ferny kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere between a palm s- and a fern.
0: Cycas revoluta. T- uh, ah, here it says a type of primitive tree that dominated dominated the plant two hundred eighty million years ago. Um, and the planet. They, uh, hmm? Sorry. Did I? Did Shut I?
1: Shut up! Shut up! To you. <laughs>
0: It's fine. Please correct <laughs> me if I sugar. say something wrong. I, know I
1: had too much sugar today.
0: Um, and there are these sheltered undercliffs in the Ventnor Botanic Garden on the Isle of uh, White. And um, these uh, species that is uh, native to Japan and, was, uh, and w- what was uh, like the area that turned to, out to be Britain like all these million years ago um and they could not flower in, in like in in britain before um because it was too cold and the climate wasn't right but now with global heating on like this 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 island is one of the uh, mildest climates in the uk and mm-hmm. now with global heating it gets mild and warm enough on average that these things that take a very long time to set um seeds and make the like, they make these cones uh, for their sexual organs um Which is usually like that takes over half a year for them to make one of those. Mm -hmm. And this is usually decided in the summer, the year before. And then it takes uh, all winter until spring. And it has to be mild enough and warm enough for Mm -hmm. the plant to commit and go through. And this can only happen not from like one warm summer, one warm year. It happens from like a rise in average temperatures over a longer period Mm of time. which is at the same time fascinating and terrible because yeah, it's great that you have like this, this plant is sort of like this biosensor, right? It gives you a visual clue about the rise of average temperatures because it couldn't do this forever and now it can uh, make these organs. But the reason it can do that, it's it's terrifying that it's global heating.
1: Your arm's unique brand of optimism. <laughs> it's like, I've got good news. By the way, global warming is coming for you all. It's I think it's, it's nice news if you want to have like Some more dinosaurs roaming the planet, like really established Jurassic Park kind of situations. That's then it's nice news,
0: yeah. And it's for like the biologists, it's for them, it's amazing because now they can set seeds. and I feel
1: like they could have grown it in a greenhouse, so and got the same effect, right? Like, (laughs) probably, I mean,
0: (laughs) I mean, they're mostly propagated now in botanical gardens around the world, these plants. So these are not, um, they're not extinct or like you don't really find them in the wild, but um, they they got them. Yeah, they got them and they have seeds and they have ways to propagate them. But now they can even do do it outdoors in the UK. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh,
1: Do you have any cat facts? Should we end on a cat fact? I
0: don't really have a cat fact today. I
1: have a cat fact, but it's a bit weak scientifically, I think. (laughs) So um, I found this via The Independent. Um, It says that crazy cat ladies do not exist, scientists say. Um, And basically, it's a study that was published in the Royal Society Open Science um, Journal. And they were looking at different things, how pet owners see whether an animal is sad or depressed and how that also correlates with the sadness or depression of the pet owners themselves, things like this. Um, And they basically came up with um, the conclusion that cat owners are uh, despite being viewed as lonely more emotional more depressed than dog owners this finding found that they were in fact not they fine um <laughs> but i should mention that it says like the the researchers studied the reactions of 561 people um only 111 of those were male so mostly crazy cat lady options but i mean that sounds like an okay size group but actually only 31 people owned a cat <laughs> I mean, another 49 also owned a cat and a dog, so, but that's not a big enough. (laughs) No. (laughs) But 31 people are not depressed. (laughs) But so,
0: like, the control group was like several hundred people when.
1: No, because they also had, like, people who owned cats and dogs and people who owned just dogs. There was, like, looking at different. And this was not really the aim of the study. The aim of the study was to look at the the different vocalizations of the animals. I think. I haven't looked at the original study. I'm just looking at the, the journal, which is very bad of me, but um my my friend has a dog and she keeps on sending me stuff saying like dogs are better <laughs> because cat owners are like sadder or are less content with their life <laughs> and stuff I'm like yeah
0: which is not true Cats. it's are just best.
1: objectively not true cats are awesome
0: yeah okay <laughs> i think we should end now. this this is our show follow us on all the social media please
1: yes um on instagram and on facebook we're at plants and pipettes
0: on twitter we are at plants pipettes. And uh, follow, uh, read our blog on plantsandpipettes.com. Um, we have cool articles there. Uh, Jerome ha- does
1: really pretty pictures, guys.
0: Yeah. Um, so, uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, review us yeah, on yeah, iTunes. Yes, yeah, yes, I do. Yes. Yeah,
0: please help us by reviewing us on iTunes. Any review helps us climb the ladders of the algorithm and be found by more people and tell amazing plant stories to more people. And um, yes. Nice reviews there. Then uh, goodbye.
1: Goodbye.